You know, it's been a while since I've spoken. I mean, as I preached. But today, um, I'm going to put that on hold for one more Sabbath. Uh, we have a guest with us. Uh, I want to introduce him to you. His name is Paul Volk. Uh, he has spoken in over 30 countries, uh, has done and, and appeared on various TV programs from 3ABN to Trinity Broadcast. And he's passionate about sharing the gospel in various ways, more specifically in terms of how to live a healthy lifestyle. Uh, he's a certified health instructor. And this morning, I know that he, he's going to share with us a message that's going to not only be practical, but is also going to be highly spiritual. So I'd like to introduce uh, Mr. Paul Volk to you uh, this morning. Come on up, Paul. And like I do before any of the uh, church participants um, that are here with us for the first time and or are speaking, I want to pray with you and for you. And then once we do that, the floor is yours. Father God, I want to thank you for bringing us uh, Paul this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you will fill him with your spirit. May he speak words not that come from him, but words that have been impressed upon his mind and heart by you through your spirit. We ask this all, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. May God bless you. Well, it's much warmer here than where I'm from. I'm from Alaska. And uh, for the last five years or so, every winter, I leave to where I can thaw out. So I've been to Hawaii, and I've been to Texas, and North Carolina, and uh, several other places. I left this time in October because I was uh, invited to go down to It Is Written, uh, in uh, Chattanooga, and then I spoke at our college there, and then I spoke in Alabama and Georgia, and I arrived here in Florida in January, first uh, at uh, St. Petersburg, and I've been here since then. Uh, now I'm staying in Cape Coral. I'm looking to see if God wants to open a door for me to relocate here in Florida. I want to be a place where I can be not just effective, to be most effective, because I believe we're living in a time when Satan is being most wicked, and his, his rampage is just unbelievable, what I see going on everywhere. So um, I'll be praying about where God would have me and where I can do the greatest amount of good for others and to bring glory to him. The title of the sermon this morning is uh, God's Testimony because it really is all about God and what he did for a man like me. A world-famous theologian was about to retire from the seminary where he taught for many decades. Many pastors, evangelists, and students from all over the world gathered together to bid a fond farewell to this much-beloved professor. The banqueting hall was packed, and as he approached the rostrum, a hush fell over the crowd. Notepads were ready, tape recorders were taken out, and he said these words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he sat down. That was it. I like that. Say it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you believe that? I'm not convinced. Do you believe that? Yeah. That sounds better. Now, to give you a little bit of my background, my father was a Roman Catholic, my mother a Methodist Sunday school teacher, my brother an elder in the Mormon church, and I went to Baptist Bible school. So we had a lot of churchianity as I was growing up, but we really, I really didn't know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. You and I have two critical needs in this lifetime, and depending upon how well and how often those two needs are met, it will determine our quality of life while we're here on this earth. The first need is to receive love. The second need is to give love. And it is through Jesus Christ that we receive more love than we ever thought existed. 
And then because of that, we're able to give more love than we ever thought possible. 1 John 4.19 makes that very clear. We love because he first loved us. Now, the Lord knocks at the door of our heart many times to try to get us closer to him. Have you noticed that? I noticed it all through my, first time I gave my heart to the Lord, I was in third grade at uh, Baptist Vacation Bible School. I was so excited and so happy, I skipped all the way home. That was my first encounter. But the Lord and I had several others because I had some detours and interruptions from the devil. I remember one time in particular, I was heading for college from Alaska to go down to Washington. And back in the 60s, when you got on the airplane, there was no assigned seating, for those of you who remember. You just sat wherever you wanted. And I would always try to be one of the last to get on, because when I got on the plane, I would look around to see if there was any young ladies sitting by themselves. And I got on the flight that evening, and back in the left-hand side next to the window, there was a young lady sitting by herself. So I worked my way to the back, and I came upon her, and I said, is anybody sitting here? And she said, no. I said, do you mind? She says, go ahead. I sat down, and we began our three-and-a-half-hour flight from Anchorage to Seattle. We barely got into the air, and she started sharing with me about her love for God. And I thought, oh, great. I got a Jesus freak. That's what we called them back in the 60s. And I said, well, I'm not opposed to that, um, but it's not what I had in mind, but I'll go ahead and listen to her. As we began to land into Seattle Airport, she said, Paul, there's a couple of things I must share with you because I may never see you again. And I said, okay. First of all, I'm scared to death to witness. But I made God a promise that if he would bring somebody into my path, I would share my faith. When I got on this jet this evening, I sat down beside this window and prayed, Father in heaven, if there's somebody on this flight that needs to know the saving blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross, and before I finished that prayer, a voice interrupted. I looked up, and it was you. So you and I have a divine appointment this evening. I said, okay. She said, secondly, I believe one day you're going to become a Christian. I can tell by your excitement, by your enthusiasm, by your joy, that God is going to fulfill that when he comes into your life. And I said, yeah, you all say that. You're going to become a Christian. You're going to get, you're going to get us. You're going to be one of us. <laughs> she says, no, no, no. I believe you're going to become a Christian one day. And when you do, I'm going to tell you now, there's going to be one thing you're going to regret. I said, one, I could tell you a half a dozen right now. I can't smoke this. I can't drink this. I can't go there. I can't do that. She said, no, no, no. There's only going to be one thing you're going to regret. I said, well, lay it on me. I'll tell you if you're right or wrong. Paul, the one thing that you're going to regret when you finally become a Christian is that you didn't do it sooner. And you know, she was absolutely right. The only thing I ever regretted was I wasted the first 23 years of my life destroying not only myself, but everyone around me. I was involved in a, in a very pathetic little game. Some of you may know this game. Some of you may still be playing the game. I call it the love me game. And it goes something like this. Hi, my name is Paul, and I want to have lots of friends. So I'll smoke what you smoke. I'll drink what you drink, I'll wear what you wear, I'll listen to what you listen to, I'll go where you go. Just love me, be my friend. I want to have lots of friends. I got pretty good at the game. I had a lot of so-called friends. But this game nearly cost me my life. And I'm going to share that with you right now. I was living in Tucson, Arizona, which is just over the Mexican border. My roommate had gotten some marijuana in from Mexico, and unbeknownst to me, it was laced with angel dust. Now, it was not one of God's angels. It was a fallen angel. It's also known as PCP. It's actually an elephant tranquilizer, and it can tranquilize humans to a dead stop. After a couple of hits of this marijuana, my system started to go crazy, and I got scared. I left the party, I went back into my bedroom, and I pulled open the bottom drawer because I remembered what I had shoved down there, a Bible. This is where you go when you're in over your head. I lay down on the bed with the Bible against my chest. I knew I was dying. My system was shutting down. And as my eyes got heavier and heavier, I had one last prayer. 
God, if you're real, if there really is a heaven, there really are angels, then let me live to see the morning sun. But if there's no God, no heaven, no angels, and all of this is a fairy tale, then I'll just die tonight and it won't make any difference. But if by chance you're real and you let me live to see that morning sun, I promise to find you. My eyes finally closed for what I thought was the very last time. I was unconscious for hours. And then I awoke. Bible still against my chest. Brothers and sisters, I believe the reason I stand here today is because of the power that this book represents. As I began to gather my thoughts, I remember the last prayer. God, if you're real, let me live to see the morning sun. I reached behind me where the curtains were, and I pulled the curtains open, and the glory of God shot across that room. And I began to laugh and cry at the same time. I said, God, you're real. There really is a heaven. There really are angels. You've let me live to see the morning sun. And now I'm going to find you. But I didn't know how. And so I walked out into the living room, and I opened up the yellow pages in the phone book under churches. There was no listing for God. And so every Sunday, I went to a different church. I was going to start with the Assembly of God and go to Zion Lutheran Church if I had to. Every Sunday, I would go to a church, and I would sit in the back, and I would listen. 10 minutes, 20, 30. I said, nope, he's not here. I know when he's here, he came into my room. Next Sunday, I'd go to another church. Next Sunday, I'd go to another church. I kept scratching them out of the phone book. Months went by. The Lord wanted to see that I was very determined. Now, granted, I was doing all of the things that were not best for me. I was still going to nightclubs, but I was, was not uh, drinking alcohol. That's another story. <laughs> God takes us a step at a time, right? I was getting to bed by midnight, which was good for me. <laughs> Four o'clock was usually my check-in time. Yes, I was a life insurance agent at the time. I lived in a very plush condominium called the Apple. <laughs> Interesting enough. I mean, we had sand, volleyball courts, jacuzzi, saunas, whirlpools, wine and cheese parties, you name it, everything prodigal sons love. Only this was a very fancy pig pen. And uh, that fall, I was supposed to go back to Atlantic City with my aunt. My aunt was one of the directors for the Miss America pageant. And she said, when you start getting into your 20s and I see you're, you're ready, I'm taking you to Atlantic City with me, and I'm going to do, introduce you to all of my director and uh, producer friends in Hollywood, and you're going to be a celebrity. I have no question in my mind, you are going to be a star. The Lord knew that, and the Lord knew this was the year. And so in order to prevent that from happening, he let me experience what's going to be out there, and that was the overdose. So every Sunday, month after month, different church, different church, one day I came home to the swinging singles pig pen where I lived, and I stepped inside the center courtyard, and I saw there was a brochure on everybody's door except mine. The devil was still busy. So I figured it was time and place for a party, so I went to the neighbor, and I stole his brochure. And I opened it up, and I saw, well, this is a big, fancy, four-color run brochure, and it was talking about Bible subjects. I knew this wasn't the corner church Xeroxing them off with black and white. This was part of a chain, a franchise. And so I thought, which one is this? Because I've already scratched a number out of the telephone book. Well, there was no name on it. So I called them up on the phone. And I said, what denomination are you? She said, oh, we're just a God-fearing church. I said, I know, you all say that. I'm checking you out. You're not checking me out. I want to know what denomination you are. And she said, why don't you just come one night to the crusade if you don't like it, you never have to come back again. Are you Jehovah's Witnesses? No, I'll come. <laughs> and so I went to the crusade, and I sat in the back as normal. And for the first time, this preacher was opening up the Bible, and he was allowing the Bible to explain itself. Everywhere he went, Old Testament, New Testament, wow, this was good. 20 minutes went by, 30, an hour two hours. I came back the next night and the next night. It's the beginning of a five-week crusade. By the third week, I was halfway up the front. This was good. This was solid. Man, was that great. 
on that fifth and final week, I was in the front row, paper and pen flying everywhere. I couldn't believe what I was learning. But on that last week, he brought up a subject I could not accept. He was wrong, and I had proof. Now, for you to understand why I knew he was wrong, I have to take you back to my senior year of high school. We went to a large high school of about 900 students. At the beginning of every school year, all of us guys were walking around on our tiptoes looking over the new crop of girls that showed up during the summer. And I was heading up that north hallway, and a young lady was walking toward me with long brown hair, bright blue eyes, a spring on her step, and a sparkle on her face. And as soon as she passed, I followed. <laughs> I wrote down her room number. I ran back to my class, and it appeared. I ran back where I left her, wrote down her next room number. Well, in two days, I had her whole schedule. Now. How am I going to meet her? Because I'm a very shy person by nature. God gave me holy boldness. But before that, I was very painfully shy. So I kept asking around. Anybody seen this girl? Long brown hair, bright blue eyes. Carrie said, I think I know who you're talking about. And I said, show me. Is that her? I said, yes. Introduce us. So she did. Chris McDaniel, this is Paul Volk. Paul Volk, this is Chris McDaniel. Wow. Now she knows my name. So I would deliberately walk around that school to make sure I was heading in the opposite direction that I knew she had to go. And as she was walking toward me, I'd be walking down the hall real cool. I'd say, hi, Chris. She'd say, hi, Paul. <laughs> and my heart would pound. <laughs> a few weeks went by. I built up my courage, and I asked her out for a date. And she said, no. I said, that's OK. She knows my name. A few more weeks went by. I built up my courage again. I asked her out a second time. And she said, you know the feeling. <laughs> I said, well, it looks like we're not going to the prom together. A few more weeks went by. I built up my courage again. And I asked her out a third time. And she said, no. Strike three, you're out. But a few days later, the girl who introduced us said, hey, I hear you've been asking that Chris McDaniel girl out. I said, oh, man, don't tell anybody. I'm so embarrassed. I got the picture. She doesn't want to go out with me. She says, no, no, no. You know what you're doing wrong? What do you mean? She said, you're asking her for that coming weekend. And I said, well, of course. She said, Paul, she's booked. Every guy on campus is asking her out. You need to pick something farther ahead. And I said, no, I can't do it again. Three times, that's enough. She says, no, 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 no. Ask her one more time, but farther ahead. I said, are you sure? She said, we girls talk. So I went home, and I pulled out my calendar, and I picked something one month away, November 11. And so I went to school that next day, and I said, Chris, there was this big event going over at West High School on November 11th. I wonder if you'd like to go. And she said, yes. <laughs> I got a hold of Mickey and Sheila. I said, you got a double date with this. It's got to be four of us. I don't want to be doing one nerd. I can't do all the talking. You got to do some of the talking. There'll be four of us talking. I won't have to do all the talking. Can you talk? Can you come with us? Calm down, Paul. Calm down. Calm down. Yes, we'll double date with you. So I had one month to iron my socks, to grow my pimples, to get ready for the big event on November 11th. The day arrives. I was so excited. We went over to West High School. Uh, halfway through, we went to a restaurant to go get something to eat. As soon as I pulled into the parking lot, Mickey and Sheila jump out of the car, and they race to see who's the first one to get to the front door of the restaurant. I saw what was going on, and I said, wait a minute. And so I jumped out, and I started running as fast as I can to catch up to them. And then I realized Chris was still going. <laughs> I said, come on, Chris, hurry up. And she started running to catch up. I held out my hand. She slipped her little hand into mine. And my feet didn't touch the ground the rest of the day. And yes, we went to the prom together. This was my senior year. She was two years behind me, a sophomore. And <clears throat> because I was graduating and going away to college, we decided that we would keep a long-distance relationship. 
And she says, you know, um, next year I'm going to be a junior, and uh, I'll be eligible to try out for cheerleading. And I said, okay. She said, do you mind if I try out? And I said, sure, why not? Well, some guys don't want their girlfriends being cheerleaders because they're jealous or insecure or possessive. I said, no, 900 students, what were her chances? We only had six varsity cheerleaders. Well, she tried out, and she made the squad. She became one of our six varsity cheerleaders. I was happy for her. I took off to college. I'd come home in the winter time at Christmas, and we'd spend the holidays together. Then I'd be back to college. And then she says, you know, um, next year's my senior year. She had already been accepted full scholarship at a private university. She was very intelligent. And she said, would it, would it be OK if I, I tried out for cheerleading again? I really had a lot of fun last year. I said, sure, you know, go ahead. She did, and this time she not only made the squad, she became the captain, our head varsity cheerleader. Now, every year we always send our head cheerleader to a camp in California where thousands of cheerleaders from all over the country come to order their new uniforms and learn the jumps and the flips and the yells that they're going to be doing. So as our captain, she went down to cheerleading camp. I was off to college, came back home at Christmas time. I remember we were walking down the hallway, and we passed by the trophy case where all the awards and stuff were. And I was looking at the, the case. And all of a sudden, I saw a gold baton laying sideways, and her name was engraved on that baton. And I said, Chris, what, what is your name doing on this baton? She looked, and she goes, oh, oh, that's nothing. Come on, let's go. And I said, no, wait a minute. What is this about? I don't know anything about this. What, what is it? She goes, it, it's really not anything. Let's just go. So I grabbed one of the other students, and I said, hey, what, what's Chris's name doing on this baton? And he said, well, didn't you know she went to cheerleading camp this year? And I said, yeah, she's our head cheerleader. Well, it was there that she was voted the most outstanding cheerleader in the United States. She never told me that. Do you know why? She was a very humble girl. She said, you know, we all had fun. They were just really nice to me. Now, come on, let's go. Well, I realized this was the girl that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. I wanted her to be the mother of my children. And in fact, I had the names of the first two already picked. If it was a boy, he would be Christopher Michael. If it was a girl, Christine Michelle. If the next boy would be named Robert James. And then she could name all the rest. So I was back to college. It was now the first week in March. And I was preparing for some final exams. Telephone rang. It was a friend from back home in Alaska. We talked for a few moments, and she said, has anybody from up here called you in the last 24 hours? And I said, well, no, I was just home for Christmas, so nobody needed to call. She said, Didn't, you haven't heard about the accident. And I said, was anybody hurt? She began to cry. And I said, Chris is all right, isn't she? Just tell me Chris is all right. She began to cry some more. She said, three of our cheerleaders were coming home from a wrestling tournament. And there was a drunk driver and a head-on collision. Gloria and Cheryl died last night. And I'm sorry to tell you, Chris is also dead. And I said, no, no, you, you get her to the hospital. You can't give up on her. The doctors can do something. You just, just get her to the hospital. Just, just take her there. I'm sorry, Paul. All three cheerleaders died in a head-on collision. And I said, you don't understand. I'm sorry. They're gone. I'll need to never get to hold my little Christine Michelle. I'll never get to see my Robbie boy grow up. Because some young person decided they could drink and drive. And three girls never got to graduate, never got to have their family. And now you know one of the reasons why I go into the high schools and colleges and I talk about drugs and alcohol. Because if I prevent somebody else from going through what I had to go through, these girls would not have died in vain. I dropped out of college. I flew home to the funeral of the three girls. 
After the funerals were over, my parents asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, nothing. My life is finished. I have no more plans. I have no more future. My parents gave me the credit cards, and they said, you just go where you need to go and do what you need to do, however long you have to. So I flew down to Arizona to stay with some friends of mine. I was there for about two weeks. And suddenly I was wakened in the middle of the night. There was a pink swirling light that filled my room. And I sat up in bed trying to see where this was coming from. Now Chris's casket was a pink crushed velvet casket. This was the same color swirling in my room. And suddenly in the far corner of the room, a white ball of light appeared. And I rubbed my eyes and I looked very carefully. And this small white ball of light began to slowly move to the very center of the room. And as it did, it got larger and larger and larger, and then it stopped. And suddenly silver lines began to shimmer up and down inside that ball. And it began to take shape. And suddenly, there was my little cheerleader. I was so happy. I remember walking across the cold floor in my bare feet. I put my arms around her waist. She put her arms around my neck. She kissed me here, and she said, please, don't cry anymore. I'm all right. All three cheerleaders made numerous visits to family and friends with the same message. We died so suddenly in the car accident God gave us special permission to come back to our loved ones and say goodbye. And now, three years later, I'm sitting on the front row of this crusade, and this preacher is trying to tell me the dead know not anything. And I said, preacher, you know not anything. I have proof, and so do a lot of other people. And so I had a struggle. I had a decision to make. Do I accept what this word is teaching, or do I go by my own experience? Satan knew that if I went by my experience, he had me, because I had no book to guide me through this life. And so I prayed, I struggled, and I realized that was not Chris who came to visit me that that was a demon. I know now that she's asleep, waiting for that resurrection morning. And I know that she's going to come up out of that grave. You see, she was supposed to have gotten baptized at the end of March. But on March 6th, she took her rest in Jesus. So I'm looking forward to that resurrection morning as you are also, to once again see your loved ones and your family. Now, this was a special event that occurred at her 30-year reunion. I went to all of her reunions because, of, of course, I knew all her classmates. Been to the 10, been to the 20. On the 30-year reunion, Gwen told me, Paul, we're going to do something special this year that we've never done before. And I said, what are you going to do? We're going to go visit the grave sites of all the cheerleaders. And I said, whoa, whoa, that's going to be a little tough. She said, I know. But she said, we've decided we need to go see the girls one more time. I said, OK. And she says, I'm going to ask you a special favor. What's that? Paul, some of our classmates still aren't saved. They don't know Jesus. And I want you to speak on behalf of Chris. This will be the last opportunity Chris will have to invite her classmates to accept Jesus as their personal savior. I said, Gwen, I don't know if I can do that. She said, you have to do it for her. Do it for Chris. So I prayed about it, and I said, OK, we'll do this. I ordered cases of Steps to Christ. And when we got there to her gravesite, we were singing the songs from the 60s, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and all those memorable songs that we had. And Gwen. Offered her head. Alvin. Alvin. 
So I stood up in front of those classmates, kids I've known since I was 15, 16 years old. And I said, you know, we went to the 10-year reunion. It was great. The 20 was a lot of fun. And now here we are at 30. But there is a reunion coming, my friend, that is going to be grander than all the reunions we've ever been to. And this little girl is going to come up for that reunion. And she wants to see every one of you ready for Jesus when we get together for the greatest reunion of all. And that's why I brought this book, Steps to Christ, to help you take your steps to Christ so that together, as a class, we will find ourselves in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm looking forward to that day, and I know many of you are as well. Well, as a new Adventist Christian, my family had a lot of questions. Why another church in our house? And why Seventh-day Adventist? That's a good question. It's a fair question. One I might ask some of you this morning. Why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? I have two reasons. Number one, it has given me the clearest picture of God and his character according to the Bible. If you have a clear picture of God and his character, you have my undivided attention. I want to know God. The second reason why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian is because it has brought the power of the Holy Spirit into my life to help me be the Christian man that God wants me to be. If you can help me have more of this Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in my life, I'm listening. I want to know God, and I want to be the man he wants me to be. At the end of that crusade, I received the most important document that I possess. Of all the awards and honors and recognitions I've received in my 72 years of life, this is the most important document that I possess. My baptismal certificate. I believe my guardian angel placed a copy of this at the throne of God on the day I was baptized. Well, I said, Lord, this looks really clear, but I don't know these people real well yet. And maybe they do something kind of goofy once in a while. I found out you did, but that was beside the point. <laughs> I said, Lord, before I start running around and telling everybody about this, I'm going to give you a test. Gideon gave you a test. It's my turn. I'm going to give you a test, and here it is. I'm going to share this message with four people. Obviously, God put it on my heart, which four, because he knew who was ready. My grandparents and two sisters I went to high school with. Lord, I'm going to share this with them. And if this is the clearest picture of you there is, I want all four baptized within one year. If they do not accept it, I'll keep searching. Because we know being a Seventh-day Adventist is not what saves us. Are we clear on that? It's your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. In other churches that love God. And so I shared this with all four of them, and obviously, you know what happened within a year. All four were baptized. And I said, wow, Lord, that's pretty good, four out of four. But I did notice Gideon tested you twice. So I want one more. <laughs> and I promise no more after that. No more. Just one more. And here it is. This, is. this is the test. I want someone from another faith, another denomination, tell me that I have found Jesus as a Seventh-day Adventist. Whew, big order. Well, I could keep you here all night. One was a professor at the Mormon Institute of Religion at the University of Arizona. But we don't have time for that one because we're already noon 20. But I will tell you this one. I had worked for Nordstrom several times because it pays very well. We not only get a salary, but we get a percent of what you buy. So I'm going to share you everything from rug cleaners to... <laughs> anyway, I was working at Nordstrom several times. And I was working this time during the holiday season, which is great because you guys buy lots of presents. And so, anyway, it was back in the days when you could smoke. And so now that I was an Adventist, I didn't like cigarette smoke. So whenever a customer would come up to me, I would ask them to kindly put their cigarette on the ashtray. And then I would slide the ashtray and the cigarette far away. And then I'd come back. Well, this lady came in puffing away. She came up to me, and I said, hello, welcome to Nordstrom's. How can I help you today? 
And she, she says, oh, I would like, I said, oh, just a second, before you start, would you mind putting your cigarette on the ashtray while I wait on you? She says, no, that's fine. She put it down, and I dutifully sit the ashtray and the cigarette down. She said, oh, cigarette smoke must bother you. I said, yes, I understand it'll kill you. <laughs> she laughed, and she says, oh, I take it you don't smoke. And I says, oh, I used to, I used to, I used to do all kinds of stupid stuff. I took drugs. I used to eat dead animals. I said, but I said, my whole life has changed. She says, really? I said, oh, I get to bed by midnight. I don't drink anything that bubbles. And she goes, really? <laughs> I started telling her all these health things. And she says, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Sure, go ahead. She said, uh, are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? I'm a born-again, baptized, Seventh-day Adventist. I am so excited about my walk with God, understanding his character and his principles and his guidelines in the Bible. I said, is, and I told him my mother, my father was a Catholic, my brother was a Methodist, my brother was a Mormon. I went to Baptist Bible school. She said, I have to ask you another personal question. I said, sure, go ahead. She said, why did you leave the Mother Church? Whoa. What is a brand-new baby Adventist? Tell a Catholic, the beast. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I said, there are some things that I found contrary to catechism and the scripture. She said, really? Like what? I said, the Bible says you shall call no man father. It's your father which is in heaven. She said, what else? I said, a priest can't say, ego te absolvo and forgive me my sins. Only Jesus can forgive me my sins. She said, what else? I talked with her for another half hour. She said, Paul, you have been so open and honest with me. It is my turn now to share with you. I said, okay. Turns out she was visiting her sister for the Christmas holidays. She was from Europe, Italy, Vatican City. Paul, I am the most powerful woman in all of Roman Catholicism. I serve on the National Council of Judaica at the Vatican, and I teach the Roman Catholic priests at the Gregorian Pontifical University. And I want to tell you something. You know God. The wisdom you have shared with me in this time together is far beyond your young years to have acquired. You have had an encounter with the Almighty. I would love to take you back to the Vatican with me. I said, I'm a Protestant. <laughs> she said, I want my priest to meet you. I want them to see what it looks like when someone has had an encounter with the Almighty. <clears throat> Paul, I agree with everything you've told me. I said, what? She says, at the Vatican, I call no man father. And when I kneel down at night, I ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins because you're right. He has no authority to forgive me of my sins. I said, I don't understand. She said, listen carefully. I can tell by your boldness and your wisdom, God is going to put you on the front line, and you have a very exciting life ahead of you. Little did I know how prophetic her statement was. According to my frequent fire with United and Delta and Air France and Lufthansa, I have already flown over 500,000 miles. And it's 45 countries I've been to. <laughs> Actually, being on satellite, I've been to the whole world, haven't I? I just haven't been to countries I've been to. Figure that one out. <laughs> she said, Paul, I'm going to work quietly behind the scenes now. But one day, I too will have to take my stand. And when I do, I'm going to join you. Now, she's out there waiting, along with the rest of God's children. And you know what they're waiting for? They're waiting for you and I to fall so hopelessly, helplessly, desperately in love with Jesus that when they come in, they don't hear the gossip, the criticizing, the complaining, the compromise. They see Jesus high and lifted up. They're waiting. And we're told that when they come in, a number of us are going out. That means you, or the person sitting next to you right now, this morning, may be gone in the next couple of years.
myself included, if we don't stay close to Jesus. Because they're coming. They're coming. Amen. I said, okay, Lord. Boy, did you send me somebody from another church. I got it. I got it. <laughs> I've discovered in my travels that in every church, there are about four groups of Adventists. We've got Badventists. We've got Madventists. We got Sadventist, and we have that one little group left called the Gladventist. They have us outnumbered, but not outpowered. Because the Gladventists are the ones who have the Holy Spirit. Amen? So, how do you become a Gladventist? How do you stay a Gladventist? For myself, I have discovered that there are three things that were most critical for me to be and stay a Gladventist. Number one, most important, hands down, is a daily devotional life. A Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. This book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book. Daily devotions. Second thing most critical is I needed to share what I learned from that. Amen? To witness. And the third thing was I needed to learn how to clean house. This is sacred ground, God's temple, as sacred as this room is. Even though I grew up in a medical family, my mother was a nurse, I was not taking care of this temple. And so I needed to learn a whole new way of living so that I could be healthy, happy, and holy for heaven instead of sick, sad, and sinful with Satan. God's 4-H club. Yes. Now, when I started making some of these lifestyle choices, my mother, the nurse, was getting upset. She said, honey, you've eliminated one of the four food groups. And I said, no, I've eliminated one of the toxic groups. <laughs> That's when I quit meat. Then when I quit dairy, that was scary for her. She said, son, you've eliminated two of the four food groups. And I said, no, mom, I've eliminated two of the toxic groups. I still have four food groups, fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. Now, granted, my people, Adventists, have a fifth one. It's called dessert. <laughs> yes. So I would have to have a blood panel done every year and have it directly sent from the clinic to her house so that I wouldn't erase or mark it up. Well, I guess she finally decided I was going to survive. Now, when I went to London, I was there for three months. By the way, you have a lot of names around here as I was coming in from London, England. Uh, I saw you had uh, Piccadilly Circus and uh, um, Prince Philip. Is, it, is that who you got here? Anyway, I thought, wow, there's a lot of British influence in this area. But when I got there, Anton Hall Medical Center called me up. This is run by Adventist. It's a, uh, it's a place uh, outside of London where royalty go. I mean, kings, dukes, duchesses from all over the world come to this place. They grow all their own food around the complex. It's unbelievable. There was an African prince when I was there. And they told him he could only bring two of his wives, not all 15 of them. <laughs> anyway, when I got there, they rang me on the telly. And they said, Mr. Volk, is it true you've been a vegan for 10 years? And I said, yes, it is. Oh, good, we'd like you to come down for some testing. And I said, why? They said, we've never had a 10-year vegan. I was freak of the week. <laughs> so they said, you, you just put on your runners and some shorts. And we're going to hook you up to some electrodes. And we're going to find out what you're on about. And I said, well, how much does this cost? Oh, well, it's 150 pounds British sterling. But for you, it's free. Because we got one now. We got one. So I got down there, and I got on this treadmill. And they had all these monitors on me. And I went into the computer. And some of you uh, may have had a treadmill test. How many of you had them? You know what happens every three minutes, don't you? It goes faster and it tips up higher. 
and you have to stay on this until you're 30 seconds before you'll stop. You'll say, 30 seconds, <laughs> and then they finish off. And uh, this document was the result of that test. Now, um, I don't know if you can see the print, but on the bottom right, it said ha high category of fitness. And they said, uh, Mr. Vogt, it's impossible for you to have done this. And I said, why? They said, only Olympic athletes score this high. And I said, really? <laughs> they said, you've got to be the best of the best. And I said, well. And they said, well, quite frankly, you're too old. I said, I'm too old. When I took this test, I was 35 years old. They said, somebody your age doesn't score this high. And I said, well, they do now. <laughs> and as I already mentioned to you, I'm 72 now. I still feel like when I was in college. Life is still an adventure for me. Things are exciting. I like go places, see things, do things. Uh, I mean, I'm just type A personality, full of the Holy Spirit, on fire for the Lord. And I just can't just learn enough and give enough for my Lord Jesus Christ. So, some people like to say, ha ha, Paul, you're a health nut, you're trying to eat your way to heaven. No, you can't eat your way to heaven, even if it's angel food cake. But devil's food cake isn't going to help. Why do you think they call it devil's food? That should be the clue. <laughs> God said, could I make it any cleaner? Deviled eggs? Okay, we got it. <laughs> yes. So some people will like to give the uh, idea that, well, you just got good genes. How can you say that when you don't know anything about my family tree? My mother and my father and both of their parents were on heart and blood pressure medications by the time they were in their 40s. I'm the only one in my family anywhere that is not on prescription medications other than my cousins, but they're getting old enough now, they got it too. It's unbelievable. Now, my family um, happens to be very fluffy too. If you see a family portrait, they point to me and say, who's the adopted one? So um, my, my grandfather died at 320 pounds. My dad topped out at 280, he says. Part of the problem was my dad's profession. He's a cake decorator. Yes, of course. A lot of grease and sugar. My, actually, my dad is a very famous cake decorator. He's decorated cakes for four American presidents. Here are two of his presidential cakes. On the top was Eisenhower. And believe it or not, that's my father decorating a cake for John F. Kennedy here in Florida. Kennedy was coming here to speak. And if you look closely, you will see an alligator on that cake that my dad put for Florida. <laughs> he also did cakes for President uh, Johnson and President Truman. Every five years in Germany, they have what's called the World Culinary Olympics, where the best ice carvers, cake decorators, chefs come to Germany, thousands from all over the world, to compete. My dad entered that contest several times, and he finally won his gold medal recognizing him as the number one cake decorator in the world. In 1976, America celebrated her 200th birthday. The state of California commissioned my father to make the biggest birthday cake in the world. And this three-story, 35,000-pound cake was what my dad made for the bicentennial. Now, this cake was not in our house, because had it been, my brother and I would have tried to eat it. My brother, when we were in high school, played football. By his senior year, he was named All-State Tackle, which means you didn't mess with me, because <laughs> he would eat you. But after high school, he wasn't on the track anymore. He wasn't working out anymore. But he kept eating the food he had learned to eat as a teenager, which is why it's so important for us to get to the teenagers right now, plus their parents, because they buy the groceries. But <clears throat> my brother quit working out. Kept eating the way he did, and he kept putting on weight. And I took a photograph of my brother and his wife in front of the Christmas tree a number of years ago, and you cannot see the Christmas tree. 
Both of them weigh over 600 pounds apiece. She died at 620, and I think my brother topped out at 640 pounds. If you would have told them as teenagers, this is what you're going to look like as a full-grown adult, they would have said, no way, no way. But I can tell you people right now, when I go into the elementary schools, over half of those kids are on their way. They're on their way. Obesity is rampant in our elementary school. It's tragic. It's sad. And I don't understand why we can't stop it. We should be able to do it. But we're not. And that makes me very sad. So what I'm telling you is, I don't care what you inherited. I don't care what your environment is. If you do the things that God asks you to do, you can reach your maximum capacity. Because good health is being able to use your mental, physical, and spiritual abilities to your maximum capacity, whatever that is. It's a terrible thing to look back on your life and what you would have accomplished, what you could have achieved, but you didn't because you made bad choices. Sometimes we make them out of ignorance. I did. Sometimes we make them out of rebellion. I did that too. Hopefully, we can learn how to do those things that God has asked us to do. I want to close now, getting back to my baptismal certificate. The reason that I'm here in Florida is because of number nine of my baptismal certificate. Number nine states, I believe in the soon coming of Jesus as the blessed hope, and it is my settled determination to prepare to meet him in peace, as well as to help others to get ready for that glorious appearing. Now, I am just as determined to help you to get ready as I am. And if you allow me that privilege and that opportunity, we can share, study, fellowship together in Christ and be the men and women that God wants us to be in these final days. Thank you.